Some of you will recall uh, a TV show. I think it's called What Not to Wear. Do you, you remember that, that thing there on television? What Not to Wear. And these folks take it upon themselves to tell people how they should and should not dress. And so they go through the closet of people who have committed crimes against fashion and they throw out uh, you know, that nice dress that were given to them by their great-great-grandmother and then they replace them with more contemporary and suitable clothing. You have uh, not only TV shows that purport to tell us how to dress, but you have magazines. I came across one, I think last year, somebody told me about GQ. I, I always heard about GQ, but quite couldn't find, figure out what it was. And you have magazines like Cosmopolitan for women, which tell uh, our women how to dress and dress in fashion. There are a wide range of experts who give us advice about clothing. Those big broad ties I used to wear, I was just sadly told that they are not in fashion. And those of you men who are wearing these big broad ties just know that you are committing a crime against fashion with those broad things that cover all your chest. In fact, our children are often the greatest experts on fashion because very often they would be caught dead wearing the things that we, their parents, wear. They will not permit us to go on vacation in the Hawaiian shirt, you know, those ones with those big bright flowers, and nor would they allow us to go on vacation in shorts and those fanny packs that we had a few years ago. They are definitely out of fashion. They are our greatest critics in our dress. So there are many fads and fashions in our world. They come and they go rather quickly. They are outdated quickly. But there is one fashion that remains throughout the ages. One clothing that we may wear that will never be out of fashion. And it is this that I want to draw your attention to, particularly the Bible's comment on the spiritual fashion in which we should be clothed. And I'm speaking particularly to the verse that is found in Romans chapter 13 and verse 14. It is this verse that I want to focus on this morning. Romans 13 and verse 14. The Apostle Paul says, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision to fulfill the lust of the flesh. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Clothe yourself in the Lord Jesus Christ. Here is your fashion. This is the fashion that you should always be found wearing. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, this verse, that is Romans 13, verse 14, is what I would want to suggest to you is our motto statement for the year. We're going to pursue this over the months. I'll be preaching a number of sermons on this text. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. What it means, what it signifies. I only want to, this morning, introduce the subject before us because it is... That, that text that will guide us in our pursuit 
of the Lord Jesus Christ is here. The Apostle Paul, I would admit, in saying put on the Lord Jesus Christ, uses a rather strange imagery because we don't really put on people. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. How precisely do you do that? Well, the Apostle Paul uses language that is similar to, to this that he uses here. Uh, he tells believers in Galatia, in Galatians chapter 3.27, he says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. As many of you have been joined and united to Christ by his spirit, you have put on the Lord Jesus Christ. You have clothed yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ. He uses similar, if not exact language in Ephesians 4.24 where he tells the believers that they are to put on the new man who was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, in order to understand what the Apostle Paul means by putting on the Lord Jesus Christ, we need to, first of all, orientate the text in its context. Romans chapter 13, of course, belongs to the practical section of this epistle. Paul has dealt with a great issues before of universal sinfulness in the first three chapters and justification by faith and the life of sanctification in Romans 7 and 8. He's talked about the election of God's people and God's plan for Israel in chapters 9 to 11. In chapter 12, he begins to exhort the church to live out their faith in a practical way. And in chapter 13, in verses 1 to 7 of Romans, Chapter, Romans 13, 1-7, Paul tells the believer, the Christian, how they should relate with regard to the political structures of their day. That believers are to, are to submit themselves to political leadership because they are God-ordained, are ministers, are prime ministers, mayors, and premiers. Whether or not we may agree with them in all things, we are called to respect them and obey them so far as they are in accordance with the will of God revealed in the Scriptures. And that was what the Apostle Paul tells them, that they are to not be revolters and, and, and going against political leadership because it is God who has put them to rule over us. Now in verses 8 to 10, Paul then moves to the question of love. And he instructs the believers to love one another. In fact, he's already talked about love in chapter 12 of Romans. But now in, verse, in, in verses 8 to 10 of Romans 13, Paul reintroduces, repeats this notion that believers are to love one another. And Paul interestingly says that love is a continual obligation. It is a debt that we owe to one another. That is, you and I are obligated to love one another and we can never ever fulfill, finally and perfectly fulfill this obligation. That is, you cannot say, well, I have loved today and therefore I've done my duty and therefore I ought not to love again. It is something that must be continual. We must be continually loving one another. In fact, Paul says that love is a fulfillment of the law of God. That is, the Ten Commandments that we have in the Old Testament, particularly in Exodus 20, The first four commandments, which tells us, you shall have no other God beside me. You shall not make for yourself any graven image. You shall not take the name of the Lord in vain and remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. These first four commandments, with regard to God, 
are fulfilled by love. Because in, in saying that we should have no other God and we should not be idolaters, and we should not profane his Sabbath and take his name in vain, all of these are calling us to love God. And Paul tells us that the, the next part of the Ten Commandments, those that relate to our relationship with one another, so that we are not to murder, we are not to uh, commit adultery, we are not to steal, we are not to bear false witness, we are not to covet. He says all of this is summed up by love. In other words, if you, if you are not going to lie and you're not going to cheat and you're not going to covet somebody, then you're going to love them. That's the reverse. And so the Christian ethic is based on love towards God and love to one another. And that is why Christianity is so very distinctive. Because it does not mean that you and I are called upon to follow merely a set of ideas, a set of spiritual tenets. We are called primarily to love God and to love one another. And that's what you find missing in the other religions of the world. It's what is happening in Paris because fundamentally there is no genuine love for God and no genuine love for one another. And Paul says that we are to love. We are to fulfill this obligation of love. We are to continue living out this obligation to love one another. The final section of Romans 13, that is in verses 11 to 14, Paul deals with the question of living in light of the return of Christ. In other words, what Paul is saying is that the reason that believers are to obey those who are put over them in political office, the reason that they are to love one another is primarily because of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and because of the imminency of his coming. Let's take a look at Romans 13. In verse 11 he says, and do this, that is, go on loving, knowing the time knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The reason we are to be obeying God and loving one another is because Christ is coming and his coming is nearer than when we first trusted in Jesus Christ. He goes on to say that the night is far spent, the day is at hand. He's using the image of night and day. He's saying that Christ is coming just like the night disappears and the day comes, so Christ's coming is close. Therefore, this is how you ought to live, he says. Let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. We should not live in darkness but in light. Let us, let us walk properly, in verse 13, as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, in lewdness and lust, in strife and in envy. He says... Christ is coming. You ought not to live your life in sensuality, in sinful pleasures, but you are, in verse 13, he comes to the climax of his, of his statement to them, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. What does it mean? Because I would admit that this is a strange language. This is a strange language that Paul has adopted here. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. The first thing, and I think the most obvious, is that this is figurative language. This cannot be taken in any sense literally. You cannot put somebody on physically. So it is literal. It is, it is figurative language, not literal. 
but more particularly, in a broader sense, to put on the Lord Jesus Christ is essentially a call to conformity to Jesus Christ. Paul is asking and commanding believers to be conformed to the image of Christ. That is, the, that is the goal, that Christ must be therefore the goal and the pattern of the Christian life. We are to put Christ on, we are to be conformed to Christ. And Paul says something similar in Romans eight twenty nine, where he says, For whom he foreknew, that is God, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And so Romans 8.29 tells us that God has predestined us to be conformed to the image of his Son. That is, we are to put Christ on. We are to be like Christ. And so when Paul tells them, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, in the broadest sense, he's calling for conformity to Jesus Christ. But I believe that Michael B. Thompson is correct in his book, Clothed with Christ when he says that the call to put on the Lord Jesus Christ is more specific. When Paul says put on the Lord Jesus Christ, he means that believers are to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, that is that they are to adopt, first of all, the mind of Christ. Secondly, they are to adopt the character and the conduct of Jesus Christ. To put on Christ then, is to adopt the mind or the mindset of Christ, and secondly, to adopt the character and the conduct of Jesus Christ. For our purposes, I am simply going to introduce the subject by dealing with adopting the mind of Christ, putting on Christ that is putting on the mind of Christ. And so first and foremost, to put on Christ entails the critical step of adopting the mind of Christ. The New Testament places great stress on the mind, the noose. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew uses the term lev. We we call that the heart. But the Old Testament considers the heart not as this organ that pumps blood, but as the mind that the Greek calls the noose. It is the control tower. It is the place or the center of our willing and thinking and feeling. The heart is that which makes critical judgments. It is the heart with which we love God. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind and with all thy strength. You see, This is that which governs us, the mind. When Paul deals with this question of the true person, he talks about the ego and distinguishes that between his flesh. That's the mind. That's the, that's the, the center of our being. And the Bible expects us that in terms of our thinking, our worldviews, our attitude, our values, that we are to be like Christ in our mindset. It is the inner life of the person. We are to adopt the mind of Christ. And let us be very clear that this is not merely then something that we have reasoned or drawn conclusions from or simply inferred from the scriptures. 
the scriptures recognize and demand that we exercise the mind of Christ. That is his perspective, his attitude, his values. You take, for instance, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.16. He says, for who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? Quoting here now the prophet Isaiah. He says in verse 16 of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, but we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. We're going to try to explain this a little bit later on. Or take another passage that we will again return to in Philippians 2 verse 5. Paul says, let this mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Let this mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Mean be clothed with the mind that Jesus Christ demonstrated. Or 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 1. Peter says, therefore since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourself also with the same mind. All of these passages are calling us to adopt the mind of Christ. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ is first and foremost to put on the mind of Christ. But that then leads to the question, what is the mind of Christ like? How may I distinguish the mind of Christ? And first of all, I want to suggest to you that the mind of Christ negatively contrasts with the mind that is futile, darkened, and debased. Romans chapter 1, particularly verses 18 to the end of the chapter, lays out in graphic, in a graphic fashion, the worldly mind, the carnal mind, the mind that is opposed to the mind of Christ. This is a mind that fails to glorify God. A mind that exchanges the truth of God for a lie. And exchanges the glory of God for idolatry. This is a debased mind. It is the converse. It is the opposite of the mind of Christ. In Romans chapter 8, Paul calls this mindset carnal. And he, he says, for those who live according to the flesh... Set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So that those who are in the flesh, that is those who live according to the standards and the values and the views of this world. Those that are in the flesh cannot please God. Paul says... That the carnal mind, the mind governed by the thinking of this world and the values of this world, ends in death. This kind of mindset, he says, is hostile to God and it is incapable of pleasing God. So the mind of Christ is the opposite of this. It is the opposite of a mindset that is governed by the world, a mindset that is hostile to God, a mindset that is incapable of pleasing God, and a mindset that leads eventually to hell. That's the opposite. Well, what is it like? Well, positively, the mind of Christ is first a mind that discerns spiritual things. The mindset of Christ must be then seen as, first of all, spiritual. 
And going back to the passage I referred to earlier in 1 Corinthians 2, 12 to 16, Paul says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words with man's wisdom, which man's wisdom teaches, but the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is not rightly judged by anyone. For who has known the mind of the Lord that they may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And Paul, of course, in 1 Corinthians 2, is concentrating on this question of the wisdom of God. And the wisdom of God, Paul earlier defined as Jesus Christ and him crucified. That wisdom that, that befuddled the world. That wisdom that human beings could not understand. That God intervened in our situation in Jesus Christ and the cross. That is God's wisdom demonstrated which confounds the wisdom of the world. And Paul says that those who have this wisdom are those to whom the Spirit has given revelation. That is that the difference between the man with the mind of the flesh and the mind of Christ. The difference is that one of these, that is the man with the mind of Christ, has been illuminated. He has been given revelation from God. He's able to judge spiritual things with spiritual things. He looks not on the world as simply a physical universe. I understand that can talk about the, the nomina and the phenomena that there is this physical world and we live in a physical world and there is no gainsaying that reality. But there is that nomina, that, 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 that phenomena, that, that reality that exists behind the physical world. And the reality that exists behind this physical universe is God himself. The spiritual mind, while it appreciates we live in a physical, material universe, comes to grip that there is in heaven a great creator. It comes to realize that the entire purpose of life is to be lived for this one, who is God our creator. And all the spiritual mind also comes to grip with the reality that the only salvation that we can know, salvation from sin and salvation from ourselves is bound up in the person of Jesus Christ. What I'm trying to say to you is this. There is a spiritual mind that is different from the mind of the world which is able to grasp, to comprehend, to understand spiritual things because the Holy Spirit who lives in that individual interprets God's things to him and to her. The mind of Christ is a spiritual mind. It is able to discern spiritual things. You look at our society, people are concerned, and we are often concerned about physical things. We are concerned about what we eat. Do we have enough money for retirement? We are concerned about all the material goods of life that we want to have. And these are not in themselves evil or wrong. But they are evil to the point that they become the dominant concern of humanity. Because there is a greater thing, there's something far greater, much more important than food, money, and status. It is eternity, eternal life, the life to come. These, you see, are the things that are truly important. What will happen when we die and stand before God? The spiritual man is able to understand the things that are most relevant, most important, and concentrate on these things. Our destiny, 
the day of judgment and the prospect of seeing God and being with him. Well, you ask then, what is the spiritual mind or what then is the mind of Christ that we must put on? It is a mind, first, that discerns spiritual things. Secondly, it is a mind that concentrates on pleasing God. If you were, and I, I understand that this is a very difficult uh, task to do, but if you were to summarize Christ's mindset, what is it that drove his thinking? What is, it that to he, to, what is that to which he was most committed in his mind, in his desires, in his intention, in his thinking? What would you say that would be? Well, I would suggest and venture to say that Christ was most concerned about pleasing God, about the glory of God, about doing the will of God. He could say, for instance, in John 5, verse 30, he says, I do not seek my own, but the will of the Father who sent me. Perhaps even more specifically, he says, later in John, and he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do the things that please him. John 8, 29. What I'm suggesting to you is that that which drove the mind of Christ, that which animated the mind of Christ, that which exercised Jesus in all of his being, particularly in his thinking, was to do God's will. And you will see that Jesus Christ considers those who do the will of God, those who seek to please God, as those who are closest to him. What could he say? For instance, in Matthew 12, verse 50, he says this, For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. It is interesting that when the Apostle Paul calls believers to live a sacrificial life and to, and to give themselves to God as an offering, he says, And do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that you may prove, the NKJ says, but it is to approve the things that are good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You see, the mind, the Christian mind, is a mind that seeks to please God. It's not only a spiritual mind. The mind of Christ is a mind that seeks to please God. It is to approve the good and the acceptable and the perfect will of God. What I'm suggesting to you that, that the person who puts on the mind of Christ will desire to please God in every area of life because that person will approve that God's will in every area is perfect and good. Paul therefore says, therefore, make it, we make it our aim, whether absent, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to the Lord. The mind of Christ is a mind that discerns spiritual things. Secondly, it is a mind that concentrates on pleasing God. But thirdly, the mind of Christ is one that manifests itself in a self-denying, self-abdicating manner. It is a mind that manifests itself in a self-denying attitude. This is what Paul says to the Philippians in Philippians 2, 5-9. He says, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Well, what, what kind of mind do you mean, Paul? Let this mind be in you that was in Christ. Well, what do you mean? Paul begins to expand. He says, who being 
being in the form of God, Morphe here does not mean that he was like God. It just means that he was God, just like being in the form of a servant doesn't mean that Christ was like a servant. He was a servant. So who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a servant and becoming the likeness of men. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even to death on the cross. Paul tells the Philippians to live in unity. And he says, not only are they to live in unity, they are to adopt the mind of Christ. Let this mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus our Lord. And the mindset of Christ was a mindset of self-denying attitude. And you know that Christ's mindset was self-denying and humble because although he was God, although he reigned in heaven, although he is the creator of the heavens and the earth, he did not consider his divine prerogatives as things that he should cling on to selfishly. But he laid aside his majesty and came into this world and became a servant and humbled himself even to the point of death in the most horrible of forms, death on the cross. What we're saying is that when you have the mind of Christ, you will also have to have a self-denying attitude because Christ did not live for himself, but he lived for us. He humbled himself. He was self-denying. The mind of Christ, therefore, that we are to put on, we are to be clothed with, is a mind that, first of all, conceives spiritual things. It is a mind that concentrates on pleasing God, and it is a mind that is self-denying in its attitude. But the question then is why? Why? Why must we then be clothed with this mind? May I suggest three brief reasons? First... Because putting on the mind of Christ is, first of all, to be clothed in our right minds. There is a story, a very fascinating story, told in Luke chapter 8 about this demoniac. He was possessed by demons. He lived in the tombs. He was very violent, threatening. People were afraid of him. Had the, 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 the neighborhood in which he lived terrorized. Jesus crosses the Sea of Galilee and he comes to the Gadarenes, the area of the Gadarenes, and he encounters this man. And when Jesus encounters this man, this man from whom everybody is fleeing and are terribly afraid, Jesus casts the demons out. And in Luke chapter 8, 35, it says that when the people from the town went out, they found the man, this, this man from whom Jesus had driven the demons, sitting at the feet of Jesus and clothed in his right mind. I'm not, by the way, you should never leave here, and I wish to disabuse you of any idea that I'm suggesting that you and I are demoniacs. That is not my point. What I'm suggesting to you is that this man was sitting at the feet of Jesus and he was clothed in his right mind. Not that he was simply not behaving in a civilized manner, but that he had now come to appreciate and to value spiritual things. He was sitting at Jesus' feet, learning from Jesus. Why? Because he had come to his senses. And I am suggesting to you that one of the effects of sin is that it darkens our minds. It changes our perspectives. It changes how we view things. 
Sin has a neurotic effect. It has an effect upon the mind. Sin not only separates a man from God, it, 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 it messes up his thinking. The Bible, in far more precise language, says that the mind is darkened. Satan has blinded the mind of the sinner, the unbeliever. And so to be, to have the mind of Christ is to be then clothed in our right mind, is to be really able to evaluate things in a right way, to see them from God's angle, to be able to judge the things that are most important. It is to awake from sleep. In, in, indeed, in Romans 8, where our passage is located, Romans 8, or, or rather in Romans 13, uh, where our passage is located in verse 11, Paul tells them, he says, it is time to awake from sleep. And the, the, the Greek term for sleep is hypnos, from which we get hypnosis. Hypnos. It's time to awake from hypnos, sleep. You see, the mind of the flesh, the mind that is according to this world, is a hypnotized mind, a mind that lives in a shadow land, in the ephemeral, a mind that lives as in a dream state, a mind that, that underestimates the horror of sin, a mind that does not truly recognize the greatness of God and the love of God. A mind that does not understand the danger that awaits us if we do not know Christ. A mind that does not understand the great value of having Christ as Savior. It's a hypnotized mind. And so we are awake from sleep. And so you see, we need to have the mind of Christ so that we may be able to be in our right mind. Secondly, we need the mind of Christ because it is through the mind of Christ that we are able to prove our union with Christ. One of the ways, one of the ways, you know, you see a lot of kids running around, right? I mean, if you look at them closely, after a while, you're going to see some resemblance between them and their parents, right? Our children, for battle, for, for battle, for worse, they, 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 they resemble their parents. It's frightening, because that means that some of the mannerisms that you have, some of the characteristics, some of the vices you have, your children will pick them up. If you, if you are a proud parent walking around proudly, you, you shouldn't be surprised if you see a little Johnny becoming very proud. Why? Because they've learned it from mom and dad. The Swiss philosopher Henri Emil says that our children do not see us as we wish to be, but as we are. You see, we live in a, we live in a world where it is a fact, a reality that our children resemble us. And if we are Christians, we belong to God and we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, then we, who are the spiritual children of Christ, must resemble him spiritually. So we need the mind of Christ if we are to resemble him spiritually. If we are to be people who have put on Christ, we must also share the same mindset and the same values that Christ shared, otherwise we cannot claim to be united to him. And thirdly, before I wrap this up with conclusion, we need the mind of Christ because, and hear this clearly, a transformed mind is essential to a transformed life. A transformed mind is essential to a transformed life. There are people who want to be Christians. There are people who want to break bad habits. They want to cultivate virtues, pleasant and pleasing characteristics. 
But you see, it is thinking that determines behaving. And so you can never be a Christian and live out the Christian life unless there has been a shift in your thinking. And so one must put on the mind of Christ because indeed our thinking controls our behaving. We must share the mind of Christ. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. We need a renewed mind to live a renewed life. And no one then can have a transformed life unless they are changed in their thinking and in their mind. Harry Blameres, in the book, The Christian Mind, says in terse language, he says there is no longer a Christian mind. There is no longer a Christian mind. Well, what Blameres meant was not that we did not have Christian worship, that we did not have people who are living out Christian virtues. But what he meant was that our society no longer views life from the perspective of God. We no longer interpret life from God's perspective. And that way, he says, there is no such thing as a Christian mind. That may be a debatable point, which I shall not enter into because of time. Whatever, that, whatever may be the case, and whatever may be right or wrong in this instance, our call in 2015 is to put on Christ. To put on the mind of Christ. To exercise that spiritually discerning, that God-pleasing, that self-denying mind that was found in our Lord Jesus Christ. It is a call of this age and this year to have the Lord Jesus Christ seated at the very center of our being in our thinking. To view life from the grid of Christ. In other words, to think Christ's thoughts after him. You and I are not called upon to be maverick thinkers. We are not called upon to be intellectual trailblazers. We are not called upon to be spiritual, spiritual geniuses. What we are called upon is to be imitators of the mind of Jesus. To think Christ. To line up our thinking with the thinking of Jesus Christ. You know why? Because there is no greater thinker than Christ himself. He is God. So to be able to think the, to think the thoughts of Jesus Christ is to have the most virtuous mind, is to consider and to grapple with the most lofty of ideas. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, put on the mindset of Christ. Think life, view life from Christ's perspective. A perspective that seeks to glorify God. A perspective that wrestles with the spiritual things. A perspective that calls upon us for self-denying living. But let me be very clear and very brief. This mind of Christ that we are to adopt, to put on, to be clothed with, is a gift of God. It's first of all a gift of God. It comes to us by regeneration. You can never have Christ's perspective until you have been renewed and changed. We call that regeneration. You must receive life from, from, from God himself. You must be made a brand new person. You must be given a new heart. You see, to have the mind of Christ is a miracle. It calls for a radical change of life, a change in thinking that the Spirit does. Jesus says, you must be born again. That's what we're talking about. To have the mind of Christ is to know the Spirit of God 
recreating you, changing you radically so that you'll be like him. And how does it happen? It happens by appealing to God. You must go to God and say, Lord, change my thinking, change me. Because if he changes your thinking, he will change your behavior. You must say, God, give me a new heart to appreciate the things that are truly real, the truly significant. Give me a true heart to please you. You must go to God and say, give me your spirit. You see, if, have, if earthly fathers will give good gifts to their children, then God will give good gifts to his children. And if you ask him for his spirit, he will give him to you. You are to go to Jesus Christ. You are to plead with him for forgiveness. You are to trust in him. You are to, you are to lean upon him and you are to ask him to change you and to make you brand new. And he will give you not only eternal life, he will give you a new mind. You need to be changed. You need to be saved to think are right. But let us be clear that this mind of Christ that you are aware, not only does it require the Spirit's regeneration, it requires daily cultivation. Paul says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. The verb, the verb is the aorist, imperative. And if you just focus on the imperative, the imperative mood that we have here in the verb, it's, it's calling for your involvement. Paul is not saying, sit by and allow the mind of Christ to grow on you. Just sit by, do nothing, and you're going to find over time your, your perspective and values are going to change, and you're going to have Christ's perspective and values. He doesn't say that. He says, put it on. That means you are to be involved. You are to be engaged in adopting Christ's perspective. When you think of finances, when you think of relationships, when you think of politics, when you think of ethics, in all of the various departments of life, you need to know what Christ thinks about these things because really, it is only Christ's thoughts that really matter. And you're to adopt that perspective. You're to cultivate the mind of Christ. You're to daily seek to discern the will of God. Daily seek to please God. Daily seek to live out that self-denying attitude. That is to live out the mind of Christ. And to do that, it means that you must bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. You must renounce your own independent, self, selfish thinking for the thinking of Jesus Christ. You must bring your own thoughts into captivity to obedience to Jesus. Not my will, not my thinking. Not my way, Lord, but your way. Secondly, you are to indeed immerse yourself and nurture your mind in the will of God as revealed in Scripture. How do you get the mind of Christ? How do you cultivate it? You cannot cultivate the mind of Christ unless you are reading the Scriptures, unless you are hearing the preaching of the Word of God, unless you are getting God's perspective. Listen, every day, whether it be by the media, television, newspaper, billboards, you're getting the mind of the world. They are telling you what is important. They're telling you the latest fad, the latest fashion, the latest gadget that you need. You must have the iPhone 6, 7. You, you must have the latest gadget that you need. You can't be happy without it, right? That's what the word is saying, that life is essentially material. So you need to be daily counteracting the mindset of the world with the mindset of Christ. And the only place to find the mind of Christ is in the word of Christ, in the Bible, in the book of truth. You need the mind of Christ. My friends, you're going to, in a few minutes, put on your coats and go out here, and that's legitimate. 
you're going to go into your closet tomorrow to go to work, and you're going to put on designer suits and designer clothing. But I want to suggest to you that in 2015, put on the designer's mind. Put on the mind of Jesus. Ask him to give you a fresh view of himself. That you judge life, not the way the world judges life, but the way Christ does. Be clothed with Christ. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. For Jesus' sake.